Welcome, listeners, to The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon, the podcast dedicated to the lighter side of crime fiction. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and host. On each episode, I interview an author writing cozy, traditional, or historical mysteries. You won't find mysteries with explicit sex or violence. You will find mysteries with high-quality writing, intriguing plots, and engaging characters. Thanks for listening. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. Katrina McPherson returns to the corner today to chat about her new historical mystery in place of fear. Welcome back, Katrina. Thank you very much for having me back. Now, you have a series of historical mysteries, the Dandy Gilver series, but In Place of Fear is different. So would you please tell us about your newest book? Yes, certainly. Yeah, it is different. I finally made it. So the 15 Dandy Gilver novels are about uh, an aristocratic sleuth. So it's a world of butlers and fabulous clothes. And, um, and I love historical novels, but my background is not that. I'm a working class kid. So what I've finally managed with this historical novel is to marry those two things together, the the um, history and well, she's a tenement kid. The, the protagonist of this novel is someone who was born um, in a tenement. And I've lived in a tenement flat, um, not with my family, not with, you know, six other people. Uh, so it was slightly more comfortable. And it's set in Edinburgh when where I'm from. And it opens in 1948, which was so usefully inside my mother's living memory. So research, like naughty research problems, I could just phone up and say, oh, hey, mum, can you remember? Blah, blah, blah. It, when I say it's set in the 1940s, it's set in 1948. It opens on July the 4th, 1948, which is not Independence Day in Edinburgh. What it is, is the Sunday before the Monday morning when the National Health Service started in Britain. Everything started in one day, a huge effort to get this enormous um, system of health and welfare up and running in one day. And my protagonist, Helen Crowther, is a tiny little cog in that huge machine. So for those of us who aren't familiar with uh, the National Health Service and its origins, would you tell us a little about it and how it got started? Yes, it was, well, the best way for American people to understand it is it's like Medicare, Medicaid and OSHA, except it's for, and the VA, except it's for all of them and everyone else. So it's just a completely universal free point of um, access uh, health service. So American friends who we've got friend who um, was struck with uh, kidney stones when he was on holiday in London and got in an ambulance and, and went to the hospital and had his kidney stones removed and stayed for a couple of nights and then got some, a prescription and then got ushered out the door. And he just was waiting for that moment where someone was going to mention money and there was no money mentioned. And it was and it was for him, it was as weird as for me if I was to go into a supermarket and pick off the shelf, everything that I fancied eating and then just walk out. It's that it's that strange for someone who doesn't come from a country that's got that way. I mean, we do pay for it. 
we pay for it through an insur national insurance, but everybody just pays national insurance and it just disappears and it's gone and it's really cheap. But, but why it started, so it started in 1948 because the War Office noticed when they started to conscript soldiers, wow, can't say that, um, in 1939, that a lot of the, you know, not the officer class, darling, but a lot of the, the rank and file or the kids that were going to be rank and file were really unhealthy, um, malnourished and, you know, poxy and, you know, teeth falling out their head and just not in good shape at all. And also some of the evacuees from the inner cities that were, you know, evacuated out of London um, and the other big cities, Birmingham and Manchester, to the country, you know, to terribly nice ladies in the country, were malnourished, you know, skinny, teeth falling out their head, filthy, lousy, you know, covered in fleas. And so it was a reckoning with the state of British health. And I think, I mean, from my reading, from my research when I was working on the book, I think without the war effort, it couldn't have been done because there was this huge machine organised, you know, to get to get that going, uh, to feed everyone and to produce everything that was needed and to organise everything. And so it was kind of the muscles to make something as big and bad as a war, even a just war, work, were there to make something as big and not bad as the National Health Service work. So it, it got up and it, it got going in 1948. Um, but I've enjoyed talking a little bit about the teething problems. I mean, my uh, protagonist, Helen Crowther, is not a doctor. She's not a nurse. Uh, you know, she's not a physiotherapist. She's not an optician. She's not any of these things. Leading question. I'll leave the question for you. <laughs> well, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, teething pains. Granted, this is something I, I heard on, I think, an episode of uh, BBC's Agatha Christie, but or, or it might have been Midsummer Murders. Is wasn't there some controversy surrounding? Not everyone thought the National Health Service was a wonderful idea. Absolutely, yeah. Some of the it was it was controversial, as you can imagine. Um, it was controversial at the time. Some people, I mean, so there are always going to be some people who hate the idea of other people getting something they might not deserve. You know, like or some people getting something that they've got. It sort of what do you call it? Positional good. If you've got something that's got exclusivity, I can't help thinking about the baby blankets in Tiffany's. It's like three square feet of plastic fleece and it's $450. And the only value in that damn thing is that you've got it and everyone else doesn't, you know? So so there's, there's always some of that because, you know, not everyone's nice. And also people didn't think it would work. Doctors thought that they would be, you know, standing on the corner with a cup out because they weren't going to be, um, they thought they'd have to, they thought they'd be overworked. So yeah, it was, there were, and also people didn't like the idea that their doctor, posh people didn't like the idea that their doctor was going to go from their bedside to some, you know, box bed in a tenement and then, or no, that would be fine. It would be the other way that would be a problem. Um, so there was a lot of concern about it and concern that people would um, abuse the system. Oh, but in fact, even when I, so I was born in 1965, it was well up and running by then. And so my sort of clear memories maybe start about 1970. But then, and even now, there's a great sense of, oh, you don't want to bother the doctor. Are you sure you need to go? Because you don't want to bother the doctor. People were so aware that they were being given something that 
that certainly everyone I knew, it was you, you really, I mean, to the point of you made it more difficult for the doctor because by the time you rocked up there, you were in such a state that it was hard to fix. Um, it was hard to fix what you, what you needed done. But yes, it was, it did have, it did have teething pains, but I'm looking at it in this book. I'm looking at it from the point of view of, uh, there's a couple of doctors who work in a practice in a very um, depressed, well, not depressed. I mean, there was full employment, but the employment was in a brewery and a slaughterhouse and a dairy and a, you know, a, a distillery and things like that. So it was a very blue collar neighborhood. And I suppose in a place like that, it was a solid good it was, you know, and I, I'm not scared of tugging the heartstrings. I've got the first morning, uh, Miss, oh, heck, what's she called? Mrs. Sutty, I think, who has an adult son who doesn't have the use of his legs and has been dragging him around in a little homemade cart on old pram wheels. And she's really burly from from pushing and dragging this 20-year-old man around, um, brings him to the, the surgery on the first day uh, to be measured for calipers and to get a, a little chit to take to some office to get a wheelchair and they take such pity on him that they give him the like the floor the show model wheelchair they <laughs> give him the one that they've got and then they we'll order another one so it was just it's just nice little things like that like people getting spectacles who didn't have um spec who who weren't able to see and couldn't afford glasses and suddenly they've got glasses so um yes but there's a lot of um you know kind of unwashedness a few lice around as well everybody likes that that's why everybody, i i think that's why everyone likes a dyson because you can see the filth that's come off your carpet you know everybody everybody likes to look at that kind of thing to a certain extent but um so my protagonist since you didn't ask i led you up to, with she's not a nurse and she's not a doctor and she's not this and then you didn't ask say katrina what is she so i'll just tell you if you you want me to um, you can. Um, I, I, I have, I have learned to just kind of follow, follow your flow. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what she is, is, so what I thought was an interesting shift from the medicine, like private medicine, medicine health for people who could afford it to a national health service, which was, um, this book's had so many working titles and one of them was From the Cradle because the first slogan of the National Health Service was um, From the Cradle to the Grave, that we will, you know, we will take care of you from the cradle to the grave. It's all under one. But In Place of Fear, which is the title of the book, was the name of the the, manif the manifesto of the welfare state. That sounds so much like there should be the, you know, Soviet marching band in the background. But it was written by the Prime Minister and it was, it, the, the this little book is called In Place of Fear and it was about... Uh, it was a manifesto for taking care of people. I don't think it should be that controversial. And I couldn't believe no one else had used this title for a novel, because it's a great title for a novel. So that's my um, title, In Place of Fear. And one of the interesting changes was that there was a system of lady, and they were lady, they were volunteer almoners, almoners, I don't know how you say it, whose job it was to do a kind of triage. So when someone... Um, you know, landed all kind of squashed and upset in the hospital. These ladies would would work out whether they were destitute and they had to go to the poor house and be looked over, looked after by the poor laws, or whether they were absolutely fine and perfectly able to 
pay for a doctor, in which case they got shunted out a different door, or whether they could be looked after by this patchwork of charities and um, welfare societies and philanthropists and things. So this was a big, this um, almonry was a big bit of, of what went on with health in the 30s and 40s. And their job just disappeared overnight. But what happened almost um, instantly was they became uh, professional welfare officers for the National Health Service. So they were the precursors of what we'd call medical social workers now. They don't have medical training. They're just there to look at someone and instead of working out, well, where is this? How are we going to pay for what this person needs? They're now looking at someone saying, well, what does this person need and how can I fill in all these? God, can you imagine the paperwork with all the carbons and flimsies and going off to different offices? Because it was, it's a, it's a huge government machine. I'm sure that some of the forms were just would make springs pop out of your head. So almost instantly there was this new um, class of professional, mostly women, uh, who were doing this brand new job that no one quite understood except you were kind of asking very nosy questions and interfering and were to some extent the gatekeeper um, of a lot of this great new stuff. And that's what my protagonist is. She is a a bright working class kid who was spotted at the girl guides by Mrs. Sinclair, you know, a lady almoner with a fox fur and a, you know, a feather in her hat and all the rest of it, and taken under her wing um, as a protege. And now uh, she has become an upstart who everyone disapproves of because instead of staying under Mrs. Sinclair's wing and waiting to see what's going to happen, she's taken a job. So she shocked her mentor scandalised her parents because she's working in a doctor's surgery with two men, unmarried men, doctors, and really discombobulated her husband, who everyone expects should be taking care of her, she shouldn't be. And he's he's a road cleaner, he's a street sweeper. So she's vaulted like up a class or half a class from him. So she's this young woman who's done this quite daring, for her, very daring thing, and, and everybody's annoyed with her, at least annoyed, if not um, horrified by her, uh, but she's she's determined that she's going to do this, she's terrified but determined that she's going to do this thing. And w one thing I was going to ask about um, about your protagonist, Helen, um, as you have, have mentioned, she is a uh, working class, which is a very different social class than Dandy Gilver, the protagonist of your other historical series. So how does being working class instead of an aristocrat kind of influence Helen's approach to crime solving? Oh, yeah, because that's the thing. This is a crime novel. So all that, you know, all that's going on, the, my city, the family, the mentor, the protege, the NHS, she stumbles over a corpse in chapter one, obviously. So... Uh, there is that. Um, she's got less freedom because she's got she's got to go to work. So she's got to present herself for work at nine o'clock every morning and stay there till five o'clock in the afternoon. However, she works. Um, it's just her. She's got her own little office and she works for these two uh, doctors who are not um, concerned with how she's, you know, as long as she does her work, they're not looking over her sh shoulder all the time. She doesn't have any spare money. So, but that's okay because it's fictional and I just made it that everything happens in the city and there are buses. Um, and she also, when she's finished work, she needs to go home. You know, she can't, she can't gad about the way that Dandy Gilbert did. She's not able to do that. 
but she's um but she's got that other kind of freedom in that she is paid to be in about everyone's business and she can tramp about the city and she talks herself into the mortuary in Edinburgh. She manages to get into the mortuary to look at, to look at this, uh, to have a second look at this corpse, um, which I don't think Dandy Gilver would have been able to do. She might have been able to do it just with the, the sheer cut of her vowels, you know, just look down her nose and intimidate everyone until she gets what she wants. But by the late 40s, and I would say, thankfully, that's beginning to break down. You know that, do you know who I am? So just hop to it, young lad. It's beginning to not work so much anymore. So, so yes, she's, she has to be more resourceful of herself because she doesn't have all the resources that my lady detective had. It was great fun to, it was great fun to write. And you sort of touched on this as well. Um, this is 1948. Well, both of your historical series are after World Wars, uh, but this one is after the second one. So what, what were things kind of like for folks after that war? I mean, it's still close enough that I imagine things like rationing and things like that oh, were yeah. still going on. Yeah, the rationing is still going on. So the ration books um, are a big thing. And I had to keep reminding myself that she can't just, she can't just go out and buy buns. You know, she's got to, she's got to have a ration book to go out and buy buns for the doctors or, you know, whatever. Um, I think what the difference between writing a well-to-do character with domestic staff and all the rest of it in 1922, which is when D Dandy started, and writing uh, this working class character in 1948, so, so three years after the end of the Second World War, as against four years after the end of the First World War. Terribly badly designed scientific experiment because I've changed two variables, right? But I think, um, I think that I, from from my reading, I wasn't there, but from my reading of memoirs of the time and diaries of the time, not you know, not the newspaper, not propaganda, but people's lived experience, there was less, I don't want to say there was less trauma, but the difference between the experience of the Second World War and the trenches of the First World War was not nothing. And the knowledge that stopping Hitler made, and Mussolini, made the Second World War a, a just war for anyone who believes that there can be such a thing, where, whereas people knew at the end of the First World War that it was largely a glass bead game for the generals and that this horrendous death toll, it was quite hard to work out why all those young men had lost their lives. And from from reading people's memoirs in the 20s and people's memoirs in the 40s, that made a massive difference, even given that, you know, that the bombing and the, and the loss and the grief that went on. I, I think that might just be from the things I've read, but I think it made a it made a big difference. That's Even though, I mean, sorry, go ahead. That's interesting because I, I would have guessed that there would have been a difference, but maybe sort of the other way. I mean, I would assume that after the f the First World War was called the Great War because 
no yeah. one imagined it would happen again. The war to or, end all wars. Yeah. 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 Whereas after World War II, they knew, okay, this is the second time that this has happened. But so I guess I would have uh, thought that would have made people perhaps more cynical and pessimistic. And I guess I'm thinking that's, that's kind of when like American noir and the tough guy detective rose. Yeah. But I hadn't thought of it from the, the aspect of maybe thinking of it as a more just war would counteract some of that pessimism. So did, did, did have you, and you sort of, have you noticed a big difference between the, the, the attitudes and you, you touched, touched on it, you know, of, of the experience of we've just come through this terrible war, but no one will ever do it again versus we've now come through two terrible wars. There's, you know, all bets are off for the future. Or am I just making that up? <laughs> no, no, I don't think you are. That's certainly there as well. And and it's useful to, th- and that certainly is there as well, because there was the first, there was the first, the, the war to end all war, the great war, never again. You know, there was going to be peace in our time. But then there was the Spanish flu. And then there was the depression, you know, whereas after the Second World War, there wasn't a pan, there wasn't a pandemic and there was a boom. I mean, the recovery after the end of rationing, which is not there in 1948, right enough, but there wasn't a depression after the Second World War. And there was that sense of, although as you're saying that, I'm thinking that I was listening to someone um, listening or reading, I can't remember now if I, if it was a, I can't remember, but it was someone um, called Oliver Postgate, who was a a cartoonist. But interesting to me because he, I mean, for lots of reasons, but one of them was that he was a conscientious objector in the Second World War, precisely because he thought, well, we did this 20 years ago and there was the Versailles Treaty that was so harsh on Germany that he blamed uh, the terms of the Versailles Treaty for causing the rise of Hitler and causing the Second World War. And he thought, if we do this again, it's just gonna happen again. And then there's gonna be another one in 20 years time. And that was, you know, that was precisely his reason for being a conscientious, conscientious objector. So yes, that was certainly there as well. Yeah. Now, how do you how do you get into all these different, uh, I guess, mindsets of the world you write about because you've got a contemporary humorous series a historical series set in between two world wars uh contemporary standalone suspense novels and now a historical mystery set after world war ii and you know as we've been kind of discussing people thought i mean you know people themselves you know from a physiological standpoint were the same but their mindsets were very very different in in all of those different worlds you you can't just write the same character for each of those yeah. books you have to craft something you know beyond just just the, a different plot and just a different time mm. and and even with it, you still have to like the research is different like you know you could talk to your mom about 1948 you've got to read memoirs about the the first world war so how do you how do you juggle so many different worlds to you know put them together into a, into a book well you've got you've hit the nail on the head there exactly with that one word it's different worlds it's not it's not different people it's maybe you know the ca- the character is not a character a protagonist is not fundamentally different but she and it is always she although i've got three voice characters in this book i'm finishing right now and two of them are men oh, i've done it um but but funnily enough the woman is in first person and the two men are in third so i still okay. can't quite do that but the protagonist is the protagonist is the protagonist you know shy or 
or extrovert, you know, optimistic or gloomy. But what what molds her are the constraints of the time. So I'm always thinking about what would what would people think? What would she be able to do? What would be a stretch? What would be easy? And I think that's largely true. Although I was just thinking about Jane Austen's heroines this morning because I was listening to an online book club where someone had chosen Persuasion, uh, where Anne Elliot allows, says of Lady Russell, I think I was right to be persuaded not to marry Captain Wentworth, even though her advice to me not to do it was wrong. And that's a huge leap from us as modern women to, to back to the mindset to say, even if what you're telling me to do is wrong, I am right to obey you because you're older than me and you're in a position of, you know, she's like a proxy mother to me. So I was, I was thinking about that just today, just that sort of some, you know, you can't just take a 21st century, you know, um, feminist shaded, feminist inflected, let's say, woman and plop her down in the 20s. Um, or in the 40s, or in, as some people do, the 1300s. It just really annoys me when people do that. You know, oh yes, my 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 character's a nun, but, but she's a feisty, agnostic nun. That's just not right to me. So, so there are, so there are differences, but I'm not sure if maybe, I think maybe my heroines are, are modern enough you know, when people, when you look at the television adaptations of Jane Austen, there's never much of the devoutness of Jane, you know, where she was, she was seriously and committedly uh, devout and serious minded about religion. And that always just goes because it's not for modern sensibilities. So, so it is a real, it is a real um, issue. But I think maybe, maybe I'm just old enough. Maybe I'm just old enough to think I can remember when, like the old ladies when I was a girl, were the forgotten generation. They were the women, not the forgotten generation, like the, no, that's not what you call them. What do you call what? them? What they call the, surplus women? Oh God, yes, that's exactly, yes, them, the the ones whose sweet, sweethearts are died. They were there and I was quite a, I mean, I think you'd probably call it an old soul. I always liked hanging out with old people, you know, get a nice cup of tea and a soft slightly strange biscuit and listening to the stories and so they they were they were still there they were the women that ran everything when i was a child and certainly um 1948 because of my reading and because of my granny and elderly aunts and things just doesn't feel like that long ago and I, the things i know what things i did that made them gasp because they wouldn't have done it so it you know it doesn't feel too and until i get lots of letters saying you well you got that wrong <laughs> um i think i think the recent past is much more difficult to research because there aren't it hasn't reached prominence enough for people to write about it a lot i always remember the first the, one of the hardest things i ever had to research was to find out and forgive me if i've said this before but to find out whether someone could buy ready-made fondant icing in the 80s i just could not find out i couldn't find where you would even find that out whether it would be crazy to make someone be you know mashing up marshmallows and water and sugar or whether it would be anachronistic to have someone buy a tub of fondant icing 
I didn't know. And that's much harder than to find out anything about rationing or the birth of the health service or, you know, the the, the rents in the tenements in the 40s. Yeah, I guess uh, the re recent history is, uh, is not, I don't know, exotic enough to people, I guess, yeah, to exactly. uh, <laughs> be yeah, researching it. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and people don't see the the point of you know well if you can remember it like people not writing people's names on the backs of photographs you know which is you know anytime someone's had to deal with a box of photographs taken by someone who's no longer there you know wants to get out the ouija board and say why didn't you write down who these people were you know no and i and guilty as charged i haven't done it either so maybe maybe i'll do it yeah Oh, and, and I do want to take a minute to give credit for for knowing the term surplus woman. It's because I listened to uh, Caroline Crampton's uh, podcast. She done it. I, I didn't just happen to know that, but she she did an episode on on the surplus women. That so is the rather <laughs> awful uh, phrase for the the women whose um, sweethearts and potential sweethearts had died in the First World War. It never occurred to me when I was a child to wonder why there were so many old ladies and hardly any old men like so many in, in the village where I was born. But that was why. Now, what did, what did you, you enjoy the most about writing in place of fear? Um, it, it, you know, you, you put a lot of, of effort into recreating the, you know, post-World War II uh, you know, environment. I mean, did, uh, what, what was the most fun about doing that? Oh, the houses. I love houses. But, so the, describing the, the tenement, flat where uh, Helen lives with her mother and her father and so this is a flat with one bedroom her mother her father and her husband and her little sister but there are there are alcove box beds in the kitchen which is a big room and in the big room as they called it the posh room so I love describing that and then describing where she moves to because she moves to a very particular kind of Edinburgh um, uh, workers housing uh, called the colonies which are still there and they're very posh now they're very desirable especially the ones in in nice neighborhoods um but they were they were designed for kind of weavers and and um tradespeople carpenters uh mill workers in the victorian times as healthful housing because each house had its own door and had a little patch of garden and a bathroom inside which was amazing. And then she she lucks into, then this is hands down my favourite thing that I wrote. She she lucks into the discarded old furniture and household goods that are in the attic of this um, Georgian house where the two doctors have their surgery. So one of the doctors, it was his father's surgery before him and they used to live in the house and he's just bundled up all the old stuff and put it in the attic. And when Helen and Sandy, her husband, uh, need quickly to furnish this little um, kind of upstairs cottage that they've got, they just send it send it all around uh, in tea chests and uh, carpets rolled up and bales of curtains and things. And to them, it's they've cleared the attics. But to Helen, who on the first night goes to get some straw from the co-op stables and some ticking to make something soft enough to lie on, on the floor and has porridge made with water and cold water out of the tap for breakfast in the morning. So for her, as it would be for me, because I like going dumpster diving, as it would be for me, it's just Aladdin's cave. It's just treasure taking the, the tops off these tea chests to see 
what's inside. These crazy um, lined and interlined damask curtains that are 12 feet tall that she's got to cut them down for every room. So they're even in the kitchen, these very, you know, frou-frou drawing room curtains. And, you know, she's maybe got a set of 12 matching brandy glasses. She doesn't re need 12 brandy glasses, but they're in the tea chest, so now she's got them. That was just, oh man, I loved that. I just loved that because I would be exactly the same if it was me. And there were none of it would I wouldn't give any of it back. I would find a use for absolutely everything. <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm sitting here at a, a table that um, uh, came from my grandmother's house that I think she bought from the lady she used to work for uh, probably back in 1930. So I, I appreciate things like that as well. Yeah, you get it. If, so, if someone said, oh, here's some stuff that's for, sort of from the turn of the 19th to 20th century, I don't need it anymore. I'll just send it down to your house and you can you can rootle through it and see what you can find. <laughs> that was great fun. <laughs> that and, and it, the filth. The filth is good fun to write as well. Houses and filth. <laughs> yeah. Like what would happen if someone had just given up? What would happen in a house? What would it look like? What would under the sink look like if someone had just given up? Mm. <laughs> that was <fun> <laughs> And and uh, since there's the just like uh, many Americans are not familiar with the uh, uh, National Health Service, I've also noticed that there are housing terms that uh, you know our view of what they are is not necessarily what the uh, British view of what they are. Uh, so tenement. Um, that that sounds mm. a bit more upscale than what I'm picturing. I'm I'm, I'm picturing mm. you know the the New York City Chicago things where right. like you know yeah. 98 people are crammed into a place Pretty designed much. for 12. Yeah. So, so is that this is well, the same? Yeah, I mean tenement housing. It would be uh, like a a tall gaunt building all joined together in a big row. So, and each door that goes in, maybe the staircase goes up the middle, up four flights, and there's two or three flats, apartments off each landing. So, yeah, same thing. In Edinburgh, though, there were tenements that were everything from what's called a single end. So that's just one room where it's bedroom, living room, kitchen. There are no, there are no bathrooms inside any of these. To, you know, a, a room and kitchen, which is what, no, or and then a two room and kitchen, which is what, um, I was going to say Lexi, which is what Helen lives <laughs> in with her family, and what that's what I lived in. My first flat was a two-room and kitchen, um, but there's only two of us living in it. And but they get they get very grand. I mean, you get tenement flats in Edinburgh that have got servants' quarters in them, so the people live in with huge bay windows and twelve-foot ceilings and fancy moulding and you know drawing rooms and dining rooms, and then there's smaller rooms at the back where the maid lives. So they they really span um, the the working class, poor working class, all the way up to kind of doctor, lawyer, upper middle class um, span uh, the tenements. Okay, and so now they're they're all fine. So they were all made of stone. Nothing was built of brick. So they didn't ever fall. Well, they got bombed, but the ones that didn't get bombed, they didn't fall down. So they'd never got raised. They mostly got upgraded, and now they're really nice houses. You know, they're 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 nice places to live. Okay, so tenements more the architectural style rather than the yes. than the, than the economic class, because because yeah. I because I, I don't think here tenement is never applied to a place where a doctor or lawyer would be living. No, no, I don't. So you'd say 
you know, it's just their apartments that are perfectly nice and some of them are dazzlingly nice, you know. But it is a big difference because I remember, remember that sitcom Roseanne? Yes. <laughs> I remember watching that sitcom and not understanding the humour because to me they looked rich because their house wasn't joined on to anybody else's house and they had two cars. Oh, so to wow. me they were rich because the only people that had a house that didn't have neighbours through the wall were rich people. And two cars, you're rich. So a lot of it, I thought, I don't I don't know what it is there. I can't get what they're referring to because they were speaking in coded ways about their, you know, financial distress. <laughs> Didn't look financially distressed to me. <laughs> Although some of their decor choices were questionable. <laughs> so yeah, it's a big, um, it's a big difference. So one thing readers will be able to do when they, they, they read in Place of Fear is, is sort of get a cross-cultural lesson as well as a history lesson. Yes, certainly the, the, as soon as Helen, when she's deciding whether she wants to listen, whether she wants to move into this flat, this little house, upstairs cottage. So what it was is there's a block, a long block of houses, um, gable end on to the, to the street. And the downstairs houses, the door is on one side of this long block. And the upstairs houses is an exterior staircase and their front door is to the other side. So there's a great deal of privacy, except that your windows look out onto the other person's garden. <laughs> to me, it's just, it's just an interesting setup because you're so close, but you don't run into each other ever. You never meet each other, but you're very close. Um, but when she's trying to decide whether she's going to accept this um, gift horse, there's a bathroom. And she thinks, you know, this is this is going to change my life. This is unbelievable. There's no more looking out the window to see whether any of the other neighbours are waiting outside the only toilet down there in the middle of the back green and then rushing down there and hoping to get in there and then going to the baths um, in Caledonian Road on a Friday night. So not only me, but my mum will be round here, my sister will be round here, the whole family, that's it. We're never going to have a public bath again. And... That that was a big moment for her. I've done something similar. I've been in America for 12 years and now I think I'll never be able to share a bathroom. It used to be so normal. Family of six, one bathroom, dead normal. Flat share, four, four roommates, one bathroom, dead normal. Now I'm thinking I'm spoiled by living in America with my own bathroom. It just seems a bit gross. I even, I apologised to a um, a friend who came from home because their own, their bathroom that was just for them was across the hall from the bedroom. Ooh, the squalor. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, it's, you know, it's across the way. And they looked at me <laughs> and said, who are you? What's happened? <laughs> but I do love the American generosity with bathrooms. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> And uh, um, readers can thank you by buying a copy of your book. So where can they oh, buy a copy yes. of In Place of Fear? Yes, thank you very much. I hope they do. I had such fun um, writing it, poking around all the grubbiest corners of my beloved city. And when when is it available for, for folks to buy? It is out on the 27th of June. Okay. It's, out uh, on Kindle. it's out on Kindle right now. No. But the beautiful... It feels like a sugared almond hardback is out on the 27th of June. And it'll be available in uh, wherever fine books are sold? 
Yes, exactly. Is that the saying? <laughs> I would think so. I would think so. Yes, thank you. And uh, what's what's next for you? Is there another Helen Crowther story on the way, or uh, from one of your other series, or another standalone? We, the next thing that comes out is going to be the modern California set comedy. Uh, totally the, the biggest difference from the historicals, and it's coming out in the winter. It's called Scott in a Trap. Ooh, you have to say that afterwards. Um, um, and then after that, there's this one that I'm just finishing off, which is a modern um, psychological suspense with the two, the three protagonists set in uh, the bleakest bit of the um, old lead hills with shut lead mines and flooded villages in Scotland. And I think it rains on every page, except sometimes it snows. So it's it's, real, <laughs> it's a real love letter to Scottish weather. That one, yeah, it's got, it's still stuck with its working title at the moment, though. So I can't, I can't, I don't know what that title is. And as to which historical comes next, I still haven't decided. Um, I think one of the things I need to do when I I'm just about to head over to Britain is have a long um, head scratching session with my agent and editor and see right well, what we're we doing then. Is it Dandy? Is it Helen? Is it both? Which one comes first? What are we doing? How to decide? I don't know, but what a nice problem to have. Like who, who to who to visit again next? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And where where can readers connect with you to find out uh, who won that battle, or and and find out about your your other books? Uh, yes, I'm on. I've got a website. It's www.katrinamcpherson.com. I am at Katrina McP on Twitter because my name's too long and I'm Katrina McPherson author on Facebook because I got I'm, I'm very happy I got in fast I managed to get my name with no numbers because I got in I got in nice and early on that and I still and you, don't use Instagram every time I talk to you Alexi, I'm feeling guilty because I'm still not I'm still not using Instagram you have an but Instagram account though because I'm following you I'm, yep. I'm actually trying to find it now like I, I, I know you're here because I follow account. you I, well that's what I, that's how I managed to get my own name because I just secure my real estate but I, I don't uh, use it there yet. we go <laughs> I don't use it yet what is okay. my Instagram name is it did I get my name uh have I got see. numbers uh Katrina McPherson the person uh you also have Katrina and Lexi oh oh wow two yes how you disorganized of me <laughs> <laughs> and I don't use either of them, but no, Facebook, Katrina McPherson, and Twitter, Katrina McP. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you, Katrina McP, Katrina McPherson, uh, Katrina and Lexi, <laughs> for coming back to the corner to chat with me again. Thank you very much. It was wonderful. Thanks, Alexia. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. Today's guest was Katrina McPherson, author of In Place of Fear. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm Alexia Gordon, award-winning author and host of the show. Tune in next time for another chat with an author writing on the lighter side of crime. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.